Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 983. To begin this week's show, David Lorla is joined by Jeff Arnold, broadcaster for those red-hot Baltimore Orioles. We hear about the different feeling around the park lately and the change in energy that accompanies such a win streak. Jeff gives us insight into things like the remarkable bullpen, Brandon Hyde being a candidate for manager of the year, having the top farm system in the game, what the trade deadline might look like, and who the O's might take first overall in next week's draft. Jeff also explains why Tyler Wells should have been an all-star, and how excited the team is for bullpen ace Jorge Lopez to represent the club. Everybody was really excited when he became an all-star on Sunday, and it was something that I talked to him about a couple weeks beforehand, and you know, you, you see players that are hot, and you get to that three-week mark before you know the, the all-star rosters are announced or around that, and you begin to ask some of the guys who are playing well, so, you thinking about it at all? Um, so I know my colleague Brett Hollander asked Austin Hayes, I asked Jorge about it, and Lopez is pretty honest saying that I want to be an all-star. It can change your life, it can change the life of your family, it would be a tremendous honor, and he's pitched like an all-star really the entire season, with the exception of those two outings against Minnesota. After that, lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen is joined by managing editor Meg Rowley for an extended conversation about finishing the Herculean task of team prospect lists and farm system rankings. The duo discuss being completionists, both in hobbies and in work, and reflect on how the sausage is made when it comes to creating the prospect lists every year. We hear about things like the challenges of staff turnover, anonymizing data to protect your sources, why people like Eric's Aunt Regina like baseball, and how small things like Google Sheets spellcheck can overhaul your entire process. Finally, Eric and Meg talk about the upcoming draft alongside the Futures game and All-Star game and Home Run Derby and everything else, and how the cram schedule does not seem ideal. Is there anyone who is happy that the draft is in July? No. Is there one single person who works for a team who's like, this is a great idea? No, because all of them are already, we already have a toe in 2023. Right. The PDP stuff has begun. Collegiate Team USA has had stuff. There will be a high school all-star game at Dodger Stadium on Friday. You know, it's, it feels weird for it to be this late. There are, you know, who, who is stoked about it? is the small group of guys who get to, after the college season is over, go to the draft league, go to the Cape, go to the Northwoods League or whatever. And really light it up. Right. So, But before we get to these segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head over and check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the place to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can also get an ad-free membership, good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to not only browse the site, but also to support the site helping us to keep doing all the cool stuff we get to bring to you. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Jeff Arnold, broadcaster for the Red Hot Baltimore Orioles. Jeff, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Yeah, David, great to be with you, and it was a fun catching up with you a little bit when uh, when I was up at uh, Fenway in Boston, when the Orioles had that bizarre five-game series against the Red Sox, so I'm glad we were able to do this. And I think bizarre is actually a, a pretty good word for what the Orioles are doing now, because they have won nine games in a row and are now 500, and for a lot of clubs, that's, well, okay, we're on a good streak in a season, but... For Orioles fans, it's probably the most excitement you know that's been in the city for oh man six eight years. Yeah, it certainly has been. And you know, you go back a, a little ways, and and Brit Giroli had a 
pretty good article, I think, about this, you know, yesterday, looking at the the Orioles season and, and just kind of how everything has has shaken out with the team. And, you know, you go back to, you know, the 2011 season and the Orioles were a team that under Buck Showalter at the time really started to, to take a step forward and turn the corner. And, and Britt was saying in her article that it reminded her a little bit about what this team is kind of doing right now. And I think there is talent on this team. I think that we came into spring training this year and because of the the shortened nature of spring, I think there were a lot of question marks. I mean, when you you know cut your spring training schedule in half and you are ramping up really quickly and basically the lockout gets resolved and it's just go, 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 there were a lot of questions, especially I think about the pitching. So when you consider the reasons why the Orioles have been playing, you know, the, the brand of baseball that they have, I think it starts with the bullpen. The bullpen has been one of the best in the major leagues. It's a group that has pitched a lot, but... You, you consider all the, the all the close and late game situations and the tight ball games. I mean, the Orioles are in the middle of a nine-game winning streak right now, David, and five of them have been one-run wins. And that all starts with the bullpen and how they've been able to do. So having, I think, a more talented group and having an all-star like Jorge Lopez has certainly factored into that. Um, putting some guys in some different roles, like a Keegan Aiken, for instance, transitioning him from a starter to a reliever. Lopez is another example of that. And then also getting performances from people like CNL Perez and Felix Bautista, two big-time arms, but two guys that also had issues with control in their careers. And this year it hasn't been a problem for either pitcher. And with the stuff that they have, they're putting up two of the the best years of any relief pitchers in all of baseball. So I think it really starts there. And, and then I, I think that some of it is just there is this feeling that when the Orioles come to the ballpark every day, they are going to win. When, as you know, when you're in a 100-loss team and you're going through a, re- a rebuild and you have a one-run lead in the 7th, 8th, ninth inning, Sometimes you take the opposite mentality of, well, this is going well, but what's going to go wrong next? And last year you saw the Orioles playing lots of close games, and a lot of times they would go to one of the AL East teams that they were playing. This year they're holding on and finding ways to win. So I think as this team has won a lot of games in a lot of different ways, and you, know, you consider all the, all the walk-off wins that the Orioles have, which I think is second most in all the major leagues, and a number of them have come in unconventional fashion, I think the Orioles have learned that not only is winning possible, but winning is possible in all kinds of different ways, including uh, ways that are put you on the edge of your seat, can can shoot your, your heart rate up a little bit. The Orioles collecting three different walk-off wins a week ago where they were down to their final out in the ninth inning, and on three different instances, they won two in the next innings and one uh, in the bottom half of the ninth inning. So when you consider all those different things, and the second is a little bit less quantifiable than the first, um, I think it can explain why uh, the Baltimore Orioles are playing a pretty exciting brand of baseball right now. What's well, a little crazy, if not uh, ironic, Jeff, you're talking about the the walk-off wins and the bullpen. This would actually be an 11-game winning streak had not the All-Star closer blew consecutive ninth-inning leads at the beginning of the month. Yeah, it's true. And you know, I think the thing about Jorge Lopez, who everybody was really excited when he became an All-Star on Sunday. And it was something that I talked to him about a couple weeks beforehand. And, you know, you, you see players that are hot and you get to that three-week mark before you know the, the all-star rosters are announced or around that. And you begin to ask some of the guys who are playing well, 
So, you thinking about it at all? Um, so, I know my colleague Brett Hollander asked Austin Hayes. I asked Jorge about it. And Lopez is pretty honest saying that I want to be an all-star. It can change your life. It can change the life of your family. It would be a tremendous honor. And he's pitched like an all-star really the entire season, with the exception of those two outings against Minnesota. And, and to be honest, I think a lot was made out of them, David, because they occurred in back-to-back days. And then you go into that July 4th game against the Rangers. It's a tie game in the ninth. He comes on. He makes a mistake to Marcus Simeon, which I don't even know if you could call a mistake. I think it was just a great piece of hitting because it was a pitch off the inside part of the plate at 96, and Simeon pulls it over the over the left field wall and just keeps it fair. So you know, it's just one of those instances where a great hitter like that just made a, a really good pass at the baseball. But if you take those couple of outings and then you extrapolate them over the course of an entire season, I don't even I don't even think you really bat an eye at it just because the first half has been so good. And, and even if you go a little bit past those two outings that Lopez had, in the recent road trip that the Orioles went on to Chicago, Minnesota, and Seattle, you played 10 games, you won five. The reality of it was you had an opportunity to probably take nine out of them. You were only out of one game. Um, and that was just one of those days that all types of teams have. So, But I, I think that the way that the Orioles have bounced back, and, and my colleague Steve Molesky made this great point after the Orioles walk-off win on Friday, was that the Orioles had suddenly won three walk-off wins with two outs in the ninth inning with one out to play with each time when just a week before the team was in crisis, trying to figure out how are we going to win some of these close games. And then they win three close games in absurd fashion. So I think it also goes to the fact that you can lose a game or take a punch, and then the next day you can come back and you can deliver a punch of your own. And with the going into into the ballpark expecting to win, unlike previous seasons, a lot of that credit, I would think, have to go to Brandon Hyde, who, if there were manager of the year voting you know, done today, he would finish pretty highly, if not right on top. To me, he is the manager of the year. To me, he's the manager of the year in either league right now. Because not only is he somebody that has seen the high highs of the last week and change and some of the low lows, but he has done everything here when this is his first managerial job. I mean, you get your first job and you come in and you're you're going up against the AL East and you have four great AL East teams that are all playoff caliber teams. And then your first year is 2019. And as we know, that's a difficult year. You're just starting to rebuild with him and Mike Elias. 2020 comes along. It's a 60-game season, and you have all these different things that are happening, and baseball played in a form that we've never seen before. And then you go into 2021, and suddenly you're going back to 162 games, and there's plenty of ups and downs, as you would expect. And then you come back this year, and you see the team starting to turn a corner, maybe a little bit sooner than expected. So... I give him all the credit in the world because he's been the same guy every day. And, you know, a first managerial gig is is hard to begin with. It's really hard when it's in the American League East. It's especially hard to be the same guy every day when the year before you have a 14-game losing streak and a 19-game losing streak. And now you go into this year and you're not sure what you're going to get with your pitching staff because of the shortened spring, like I was saying. And a lot of young players, a lot of inexperience. 
some different changes. You lose John Means, don't forget to Tommy John surgery. And he continues to be the same guy each and every day. And his team plays for him. And that's the thing that we saw even when the Orioles were going through all their losing last year, is that no matter what the record was, no matter who they were playing against, they never stopped playing for the guy. And they never stopped giving their full effort. And I think that says a lot about the players, but I think that says, David, just as much about the manager too. So to me, he is easily the American League Manager of the Year, and I hope that the team keeps playing well because for a guy like him and for his coaching staff, you know that group deserves it for all that they've done. We should address, Jeff, the uh, the corner that you just mentioned, and you also mentioned the AL East, how much of a beast it is. This team is now at 500. We're, we're speaking on Wednesday morning. I believe that our projections have, you know, the O's finishing 76-86. You know, the trade deadline is coming up. Realistically, this team isn't a contender yet, and it'll be hard really to be a contender even next year, given the, the division. Is this team going to actually try to buy at the deadline, or would they be smart to sell? It's a tough question, and it's one that Orioles Executive Vice President and GM Michael Elias was asked over the weekend. And I think we're still a little bit in wait-and-see mode with the Orioles because you don't know what these next couple of weeks are going to have in store. You do know that you're going to get better on Sunday when you have the number one overall pick in the Major League Draft and when you have the second-largest bonus pool ever and a, a group of you know scouts and analysts who are very experienced at doing these drafts and, and doing them very well. I mean, that's something that, you know, for, for Mike Elias and Sigma Idell, this is the this is a Super Bowl for them. And they've they've done a lot of these between the between the Astros and now the Orioles. So you know you're going to get better on that front. In terms of whether they are buyers or sellers, I think it remains to be seen. And you're not sure, I think, where they are at this point. I think that they are definitely turned the corner and they are definitely a much better team. But the question is going to be, is this the time where you want to go out and you want to start bringing people in? My guess, and based, and this is based on kind of recent experience with, you know, just watching how the Orioles handled the deadline, especially last year. If another team wants to go out and get somebody, the Orioles are going to need the right offer to part with that player. I, I don't think that the Orioles are in that prospect acquisition phase anymore. It's not just getting people to get people. It is, if we're going to give you this, you're going to have to give us what we are looking for. And if you don't, then we're not going to part with that player. And you saw that last season with how they handled Tanner Scott and Paul Fry, two pitchers that you figured might be dealt, but were not dealt because the right package of players wasn't available. So I imagine that that Mike and his group is probably going to take a, a similar tack to that. Whether they add anybody, I think, remains to be seen. But if they're going to part with somebody, they're going to have to make sure that the return is worthwhile enough. Because, you know, I think we have moved just past the point of getting players and addressing needs that, that you have at the deadline while parting with different guys that, you know, you're, you, you're obviously helpful to your organization and, and obviously meaningful to the current team. If the Orioles were to make a trade and trade a veteran player for yet more young talent, who is the most likely player to get dealt? I think Trey Mancini is the one that a lot of people talk about. And, you know, Trey, I think based on some of the comments that he has made, I think he's ready for anything. 
think he understands that, that this is a business. He has had a really good season. I think that if you examine some of the expected numbers for Trey, it's a better season than what you see in terms of the actual numbers. I mean, I've seen a guy that's been hit the ball really well, who's taken a great approach at the plate. I think he's worked well with our two new hitting coaches. I think I've done a really good job. And I also have seen somebody who's better defensively. I see a guy that's played really good defense, especially when he's been at first. And you can kind of see that with some of the outs above average and things like that. But I think the eye test, too, you know, to me, indicates that he's playing better defense. Now, as we both know, what type of return are you going to get for somebody who is a first base DH type? Um, somebody who is a, a really good player, but not in the great player category. And, you know, you kind of just look at the history of that. And that's the one thing that makes me wonder if he's going anywhere. I, I would not be surprised if he was going to go someplace. Um, and I think Trey has sort of prepared for any possibility. But it, it will be interesting to see if he is dealt what the Orioles would get in return, just because of what the returns have generally been for a player like Trey in recent years. Let's jump back, Jeff, to the uh, to the All Star game. Unless I'm mistaken, Jorge Lopez is the Orioles' only representative. Are there any other players that maybe deserve to be on the American League All Star team? You know, one for me, and and I think that what hurts him a little bit is that he is limited from an innings perspective. He is limited because he's in his first year as a starting pitcher. But to me, I think Tyler Wells should be an All Star. This is a pitcher that pitches in a way that, you know, if, if you you know kind of look at, at fan graphs or, or any of the different analytics or things like that, and, you know, the game is still very much about strikeouts and keeping people off base and run prevention. And Tata Wells does it a little differently for no other reason, David, than I think he has to. Because when you come into a start, you realize that I've got 70 to 85 pitches or it depends on how the last start went or it depends on off days and things like that. And your goal is to find a way to get through six innings and deliver a quality start each time, which for Tyler, he's been very clear that it is. You can't try and strike people out because if you do that, you're going to make it three to four innings and then you're going to tax your bullpen, which has worked a lot. I mean, I think coming into to yesterday and we, you said earlier, we're taping this on a Wednesday and uh, I think looking at it on Tuesday, I believe that the Orioles had the third most number of innings pitched out of their bullpen this year. So Wells does it in a different way where he will get some strikeouts, but he stays inside the strike zone. And he pitches more to contact, and his goal is to get outs in three pitchers or less and give you quality starts. And he's done it. And he's done it while being able to go up against great lineups. I mean, we've seen him handle the Blue Jays. We've seen him handle the Red Sox. He's pitched well against the Yankees. So he's pitching this way, and he's doing so against really good teams in his first year as a major league starter. And to be honest with you, the way he's doing it right now, I don't think he's going to change. I think he's going to keep trying to pitch this way because it works and because it saves his bullpen and because he's found a recipe for success that, that works for him. So... I think that he should probably have gotten more consideration as an all-star. I think CNL Perez has had a great year. I think Felix Bautista has had a great year. I think because of the roles that they're in, it's a little tougher to name one of them an all-star. And then on the position player side, you know, Mancini's had a great year. I think Austin Hayes was having an all-star caliber year until he's kind of faded down this, this stretch at the, the very end of the first half. But 
for me, Lopez was a no-doubt all-star. And given what his story has been, Orioles got him as a waiver claim from the Royals in 20, started in the bullpen, moved to the rotation. Last year's in the rotation. Eventually, they ask him about going to the bullpen, gets excited about it, gives you a taste of what he could be, hurts his ankle. They put him in leverage spots this year. He starts as the team's closer, and he's been one of the best in baseball. So all that taken into account, plus the story with his son, who's gone through so many health struggles over the years, and Jorge and the type of dad that he's been to his son and what he's done for, for his family and the way his teammates love him and respect him. And you couldn't have picked a, a better all-star selection if you're going to just have one. And with all-star selections, the Orioles have the top farm system in the game. The only futures game selection, I believe, was Gunnar Henderson. That surprised me a little because there are some really, really top-notch players in the minor league system. Totally agree with that. I think some of it came down to, and I don't really understand fully how the, the selections for the Futures game go, but when you consider, you could probably have had Grayson Rodriguez there, but he's injured right now. You could have probably sent D.L. Hall, but he's already gone, and he's also you know kind of at a, an innings limit, and given how they're trying to play things with him and try to get him up to the major league team, I think just you don't want to, you know, even if it's just for an inning, I just don't think you want to want to give it up on, a, on an exhibition game. But I, I agree with you. There are a lot of great players in this, in this Orioles system. And, you know, you have Colton Cowser who's really exciting. You have some maybe lower and under the radar type of prospects who are, are super exciting right now. And, and then just the, the, the depth that you have in the farm system, I think, certainly merits more than just one selection. But, you know, if we're going to say that Jorge Lopez was a, a great selection to be an all-star, for Gunnar Henderson, he has been probably the Orioles' minor league player of the year right now. And I, and I, I don't really think it's that close. Um, and that's with saying that a lot of other guys have had great years. But the way that he's moved up a level and he's significantly increased his walk rate while cutting down his strikeout rate and doing this when he's the youngest player in all of AAA uh, gets you really excited for, for what's to come for him. And uh, between him and Jordan Westberg, who's at AAA too, some of the guys that have moved up to AA. In fact, Heston Kerstad is starting to get back out there and what he's doing on the farm. He just got promoted uh, to Aberdeen, which is advanced day. Um, it leaves you really excited for what the, the future of the Orioles is. We should actually touch, uh, Jeff, on, on Heston Kierstad. He was, of course, you know, the club's number one pick, a surprising number one pick two years ago, and he has not been playing baseball, you know, due to some health issues. I took a look at his numbers the other day, and it's like, wow, it's like, you know, he's hitting like he never missed a beat. He is, and I give him all the credit in the world because when you have myocarditis and you're basically not allowed to do anything and you have to just be super careful with something like that, it, it could affect a lot of players. And I don't think he could have handled it any better with the patience and the frustrations, I'm sure, and the, why can't I go out there and play? And so I, I think that this year, as I look at the farm, it's great to see what Henderson is doing I would like to say I'm surprised, but just given everything I'd heard about him, I'm really not. But I think I'm most excited for Eston Kersad because of how long he had to wait to get into games. And remember, he ended up hurting himself in a in a game in, in spring training, game where Rutschman was having the issue with the triceps. So that proved to be a, a pretty volatile uh, exhibition uh, game or inter-squad game uh, down in Sarasota. 
Uh, but then he comes back from that. He goes back into his progression. He goes up to Delmarva and he rakes. So to see him go, get up a, a level and to, to, to most importantly stay healthy, uh, but also to, to see the way he's hit and approached everything and, and handled what I'm sure was an excruciating situation speaks to his character and uh, I think shows a lot of people like this is why you, you picked him as high as you did. And, and I think he's going to be eventually a great major league player. And this club has obviously made some very, very good picks in recent years. It certainly helps to pick up, you know, at the top of the draft. But Ryan Mountcastle, uh, D.L. Hall and Grayson Rodriguez, of course, Adley Rushman, Kirstadt, uh, you mentioned Colton Kowser. Uh, look into your crystal ball and tell me who the Orioles are going to take first overall this season. Well, it's a question that, David, I, I know you probably look at a lot of the mock drafts, and so do I, and I think a lot of Orioles fans do too. And seemingly with every different mock draft you look at, it's somebody different who is getting picked. Um, so I don't think anybody really has a great sense right now. Mike Elias said he had gotten it down to about five. We know that the first overall pick is not going to be a pitcher. Maybe that second pick that the Orioles have um, in the in the low 30s is going to be, depending on who's still on the board and who's out there. But we know it's going to be a position player. And if I'm going to take a prediction, I'm going to guess it's going to be Drew Jones. Remember that the Orioles have in the past gone under slot, but they do have the second largest bonus pool ever. So you're going to have a lot of money left over, even if you don't go under slot, even if you sign Jones or whoever to the slot value for that pick. And I think the Orioles are going to have a great draft regardless of what they decide to do, if they go under slot or if they just pay out the general slot value because the amount of money that they have in that pool. So to me, I think it's Drew Jones. It sounds like he's the best overall player from people that I've talked to. Um, I think he has tremendous upside. I would not be surprised if maybe Brooks Lee was one possibility too, because as we have seen in the last couple of drafts, um, in fact, we've seen in all the, the Michael Elias drafts, you know, they have gone with college bats and players like Kerstad and Kalzer and Rutschman. Um, so that wouldn't surprise me either, but I think they're at a spot right now. And, you know, Elias has said that he does like taking high school headers and, you know, once upon a time, he picked one very, very good one when he was with the Astros. So I feel like that this is the draft where because of where the Orioles are in their process, and while there's there's no consensus like there was around Adley Rutschman, I do think that Drew Jones is the guy that they're going to go after. And I've, I've waffled between a couple of different ones, but but I think he would make the most sense that he's probably the best player that's out there from some of the recent mocks that I've read from people that I've talked to. So I'm going to go with him. But that being said, uh, if they go with maybe, say, a, a Jackson Holiday or someone else, I, I won't be surprised. And with bats in mind, Jeff, Camden Yards looks a lot different this year than it has previously. What do the fans think about the configurations? I think that they've kind of gotten used to it. Uh, I think that it is you know, definitely new. I think it has helped out the pitching staff. I think it is also, I think the dimensions have kind of gotten to the point where, you know, they people understand what they are. I think the ball is flying a little bit more. Um, and, and I think you realize that some changes needed to be made to left field uh, because, as as we had heard it said before, pop-ups, especially in the summertime when it's really warm and humid here in Baltimore, could turn into home runs. And, and you wanted to get rid of that. And you also wanted to 
maybe make things a little bit easier to attract free agent pitching and get pitchers to, to come to Camden Yards, which is not an easy thing to do just because of how the ballpark had played in the past, just because of the division that you're in, and also because in the past the Orioles had overpaid for, for starting pitching, and generally it had not gone very well when they had. So I think they were looking for some kind of a change. And so I think if you ask the hitters, you're going to get one answer. I think if you ask the pitchers, you're going to get another answer. And if you look at the numbers, I think it's been been pretty even between who it's affected from both the Orioles' perspective and the uh, opponents' perspective. Um, but it's a it's a change that it, you know it's it's occurred in left field. I would tend to think that it's probably going to just take place there. Um, and I think it's one that people have started to get used to and has made it a little bit more fair for the pitching, which. You know, as we know, has given up a, a lot of home runs uh, in recent years. So to close, Jeff, let's uh, parallel the fact that the ballpark has changed a lot with the fact that the ball club has changed a lot results-wise. With that in mind, how different and how much more fun is it to call Orioles games this summer than it has in the past two? Well, I mean, I'll say this. The, the first year that I had was, was 2020, and that was a pretty bizarre year. And, and last year was, was certainly a, a tough one for the Orioles being in that rebuild process and, you know, having those two long losing streaks. But, yeah, this is, this is starting to feel like you're on the, on the ground floor and that you're starting to see the progress and seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And that's a great thing to see. And, and I think, too, you're getting a glimpse of the pieces that are going to be here long term. started with Adley Rutschman and his arrival D.L. Hall, you figure, is going to be up here at some point. Then Gunnar Henderson, Jordan Westberg, and then eventually Grayson Rodriguez, too. You know, those guys are going to get up here, and you expect them to have big impacts. And you're starting to see what the farm system is capable of and how all the different teams down there are really playing well. Some of those will be major league players for you. Some of those will also be pieces that maybe you trade to go get pitching and to allow you to compete with some of the big boys in the American League East. But the Orioles are already already doing that with the, with the team that they have, to see the development and growth of different players, to see the way Tyler Wells has started, to see the way that Jorge Lopez has developed into your closer, how Trey Mancini has had a really nice season, to see how Adley Rutschman has handled the big leagues, which I think has been extremely well. So it leaves you really excited for what is to come for this team. I think it's a blast to call these games every day because you go to the ballpark and you never are sure what you're going to see. Last week was as exciting a week as I've ever had doing games of any sport at any level because you're coming to the ballpark and you're thinking to yourself, how are they going to win today? And I think that this team is playing with a lot of confidence. Clubhouse is positive. Everybody's enjoying it, and rightfully so, uh, because I I think for the guys that have been here since the, the start of this rebuilding process, and now to kind of see how all the work is paying off um, and to see some of the pieces arriving and to see that not only the wins, but the wins against some good teams, that leaves you pretty excited for what's down the road. No, there is a lot to be excited about, Jeff. I think maybe the only thing standing in the way of success in the very near term is the division. So maybe Michael Elias can convince the commissioner's office to trade the Baltimore Orioles to a division other than the AL East. (laughs) I will say this. It is a division that has certainly made them better. And I think we all realize that the rebuilding process would have been a lot easier if it was done in the American League Central or in the American League West. And you look at where the Orioles are right now in terms of winning percentage and things like that, and where they have progressed to, and 
the fact is that, you know, you going to yesterday, you'd have been third in the Central, you'd have been third in the West. And even in spite of that, you know, you're you're still knocking on the uh, the door of the final wild card spot. And we're almost at the All-Star break. So I think he gets you really excited and really pumped for, for what's to come. And when, when Michael Elias took this job, it's just like when Brandon Hyde took this job, they knew this was going to be a long-term process. And they knew it was one that was going to take place in not only the hardest division in baseball, but one of the hardest divisions in all of major league sports. And, you know, that drove them. And, you know, they have put together, you know, a system that I think will hopefully allow the Orioles to not only, you know, be winners now and be bigger winners in the next couple of years, but it's hopefully going to make sure that the rebuilding process, which took place, is never going to have to take place again anytime soon. Um, and that was the thing that you know, they realized that they needed to do is it pretty much a, a ground floor rebuild. And that's really hard to do. And the circumstances that they were kind of presented to them is, has made this very, very difficult. But I think that playing in this division makes them better. I think it makes them sharper. And I think for some of the players, you know, when you know, if you're a pitcher and you can find a way to strike out Vladimir Guerrero Jr. a couple of times, it's going to give you a little bit of confidence. And I think the players have gained more confidence not only from the fact that they have won games, but the fact that they have played very competitively in this first half against the American League East. Because if you take a look at what the team's record is, you know, right around the 500 mark against uh, the division, having won a bunch of series against the Yankees and the Rays and split against the Blue Jays and taking them the five gamer that you and I saw each other at against the against the Red Sox, it's hard not to gain an extra degree of confidence from that and uh, as as the Orioles get used to winning not only cross baseball but specifically inside that division I think it's only going to make the the team better and is going to remind them that hey they might have big payrolls they might have big name players they might have multiple all-stars but we can compete with them winning baseball is fun Jeff and it was definitely fun to have you on as a guest on Fangraphs Audio so thanks again for coming on you got it David we'll talk to you soon Okay, and thanks everybody for listening to Fangrass Audio. Hello, Fangrafts Audio listeners. This is lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. That Kate Bush song is still stuck in my head. I'm joined today by managing editor Meg Rowley, making the rare cross pod appearance. How's it going, Meg? <laughs> it's going okay. How are you? <laughs> That's all. That's about all the uh, the juice I have as well. Where it's just like, yeah, <laughs> fine. We're still here. I also have that Kate Bush song stuck in my head. Yeah. Why is it? How do you heard that song before it was part of? Yes. The Netflix show Stranger Things. You okay? So you had. Yes, I had. I had heard both Kate Bush's version and then several subsequent covers, all of which were huh. sung by like sad people who were feeling sad about stuff. So like she she fits into like, you know, sad girl summer oeuvre for me. So I don't know why I the algo denied that or any Kate Bush anything to me. Yeah. Just discovering Kate Bush at all at age 33 has been kind of like, oh, like the filter of time is is pretty nice. I didn't discover a lot of the music that I feel really strongly about until like my, my mid-20s uh, when I like got off the MTV or whatever. <laughs> 
I was being, you know, force fed from pop culture basically. And yeah, found the Smiths and all this other stuff. And yeah. I just can't believe that the algo was never like, here, you, you're going to like this. I have also, you know, because of my nature, learned a lot of, of things about Kate Bush over the last <laughs> several weeks. Do you mean to suggest that you are a completist by nature, Eric? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. It's like, oh, what did this Greta Gerwig, I got to learn everything about her now. And <laughs> like almost to satisfy, I'll never meet this woman who I have a piece of me is in love with, but I'm going <laughs> to learn everything about her. I'm sure I won't kill anyone. It's fine. But, uh, but yeah, like... She's awesome. People should check that out. Yeah. I have no idea. She, there's so much overlap there with the other stuff that is typically spoon-fed to me by, you know, now it's Spotify and all sorts of other stuff. It's like, hey, you'll like Tame Paul, And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. All right. So you and I, mostly you and I, have finished the team list slog. <laughs> Speaking of expressions of being a completist. Right. So <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about it as a thing that we do yeah what it is we do like physically with our fingers and a keyboard to make it happen and what are we gonna do now yeah <laughs> so to take people through like sort of the history of this i've been at fangraph since 2016 it was like may ish or maybe it was right after the 2016 draft because like fangraphs has decorum and doesn't didn't hire me away from espn.com <laughs> Right, you know, in the middle of the draft process, they didn't take me away from Keith at an inopportune time. Uh, and so after the draft, I left ESPN.com, which I was freelancing at, and I was working as an insurance underwriter, which was soul crushing. Yeah. But was, you know, useful in some other ways because I could kind of sit at my desk and do baseball stuff yep. um, and sneak out of the house and go to, to Fall League games and work from home in scare quotes. Yeah. So I was doing fan graphs things. It was just me. Right. And then it was me and Kylie again for a little while. And right. then just me again. Yep. And then, so for the most part, just me. But Kylie had been here before. And so there was like a process. Like there was no change. It was smooth and uh, harmonious because Kylie and I just seemed to balance one another in that way. Yeah. At what point during that chaos... Did Carson leave and you join? So I joined the site on the Hardball Times side in January of 2018. And then Carson got hired by the Blue Jays in November. November? Yeah, of, I think that's right. 2018, I think it was November. I remember that the first list that I did was the Red Sox. Like the first list that I edited was the Red Sox in that year's list cycle. So gosh, we could go back to to figure out exactly when he left, I suppose, but It was right around Thanksgiving. Right. Because I was cooking a huge meal for a bunch of people when Carson Now I'm remembering this. Yeah, yeah. Like, Hey, uh, Eric Langnigan, um, <laughs> I have news, but, have news. uh, so, all right. So your first, what did you think the first time you had to do that? Because that first cycle, you and I. And Kylie. And Kylie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We like, had Kylie. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm sort of remembering that. So yeah. what, what do you remember about your initial foray into this process? Uh, 
I just, I mostly remember feeling like I was very concerned that I was going to like lead you guys astray in some important way. Like, I think one of the things that I fret about the most as a, as an editor is that like, there is an obvious error or oversight with a piece and I am not going to, to notice it. And then people are going to be mean to a writer as a result of that. So, and that, that would be a bad feeling, right? So I think that in the beginning, my initial, my initial feeling was, wow, there are so many of these guys. Like I, I felt like I, you know, I would like watch the draft and I was familiar with the prospects of like some systems like Seattle's more than others, but you know, I don't have like, I didn't feel like I had a deep well of prospect expertise necessarily. Like, I don't know that I have a deep well now, but you know, I know, I know the guys, right? So I think my initial feeling, which I did not share with either you or Kylie was worrying that I would fail you both terribly. (laughs) Well, I can tell you that regardless of whether or not it says that Noah Schultz is five foot nine instead of six foot nine on the board, people are going to do what they do. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? I guess it couldn't have been the Red Sox list because we ran that Red Sox list in January, so it had to have been an earlier list that I initially did. But so there's like there was that piece of it where which was sort of just the defining characteristic of me assuming the managing editor role for the first little bit across the board. It was not unique to, to the prospects I was like, oh god, am I right. going to do a terrible job and everyone's going to hate me? So you know that was a thing that I worked through with the help of professionals, but um. But after that, it was really appreciating just like, and I don't say this to to blow smoke or to to congratulate ourselves too much, but like the, the sheer amount of work that goes into producing these and the volume of work sort of at every stage of it, right? So there's like the the actual information gathering and assessment component of it that at the time you and Kylie were doing that now just that just you do that at various points over this list cycle that we've had the help of, you know, Kevin Goldstein and Brenda Golowski and Tess Truskin. So like there, you know, that work of talking to people on the phone and going to games and watching video and analyzing data and sort of bringing all of that into a coherent whole that allows you to formulate an opinion, not only of that guy, but like where that guy stacks up relative to all of the other guys. So there's like that piece of it. And then there's the actual writing part of it, which is also incredibly time consuming. And then there's like all of the like this and that and bits and bobs, like technical, logistical work that we do to like bring all of this stuff together in some kind of a coherent package so that our readers are not like, what is this? Where where are my words? And, you know, we are greatly aided by Sean Dolinar in that yeah. in that part of it. So that was definitely for me a monkey touching the monolith moment when yeah. Sean started to put together tools that made yeah. it so that like Kylie and I weren't just in a naked, vacant WordPress right. formatting every single line right. by hand. Yeah. Where basically like there exists a huge spreadsheet where there the number of rows is however many guys there are on the, the board. Right. And the columns are through uh column C A. <laughs> right. So you do the math. Right. That's I don't know fifty. There's about there are really about fifty five columns when you factor in some of the uh, probability distributions that we use only for the top one hundred guys, right. and a couple more when you're talking about like Paul 
is in there doing fantasy rankings and, and, and various things. And so how, you know, just it's a multiplication equation, how many right. individual cells are in this spreadsheet, but they are all populated by hand. Like we have, you know, a formula for age. Right. And there, there are even things operating in the background that like aren't public on the site yet. They are right. things that exist in the background here in hope that eventually they will be on the site or that they can yield interesting research. Like every high school player who has been, who has like been picked or entered pro ball and become like prospect E during that time, for sure there's, there are random players who they're not like on a draft ranking. They become prospects in my mind later. Sure. But like everyone's college commitment right. is in here and stuff like that. So like eventually it's like who, what, what are these alternate universes where all these guys go to LSU or whatever? Right. But uh, how much of it, and this applies to basically everything that you're editing, how much of it sticks to you and you absorb as knowledge or opinion uh, that you consider and how much of it is you are making the words look correct grammatically and formatting this and it's not actually absorbing so much as you are like, you know, build like you're almost like building a thing rather right. than reading a thing. Because you read a lot on your own. Yeah. And absorb. But yeah. this you are also reading how much of it is work and how much of it is, you know, your actual, it's actually seeping into your brain and you're learning about like Bryce Jarvis and stuff. It is admittedly less than I would like it to be. It's, you know, it's tricky when there are so many guys, <laughs> you know, you're never going to be able to remember, you know, some of some of these lists, Eric, I don't know if you know this, but some of them are quite long. You know, they got a lot of they got a lot of dudes on them. They got the, they got all the ranked dudes and then they got all these extras. You know, did, did we have I think we maybe had one list this year that had fewer than 30 ranked prospects. Did it was it really did we maybe only have one? There was an era when that wasn't true, sure. but it became weird to like I want to let you finish your thought, but it became weird for guys to have a big league impact or be traded for. Right, and not or, have been ranked. Right, and not to have been anywhere on there and it still happens on rare occasion, but it just didn't feel if when there's so much activity on the roster margin, when the Rays right. need relievers because of their injuries and they're going and, you know, Josh, the idea that Josh Fleming just doesn't appear on a prospect list at all is like bad. Right. Like that's an industry wide failure in my opinion. And so, yeah, to combat that, like this has happened. Yeah. And for sure I could account, you know, how many guys were on lists two cycles ago who were like released yeah and the number is is more than 10 it's probably like closer to 50 or whatever right and some of those guys were like throwing 98 miles an hour and just right. can't throw strikes and right. then every once in a while one of those guys becomes felix bautista right and then you're really happy we had a report on that yeah guy. yeah <laughs> right and this is the struggle i guess washington was only 29 but it was just barely under 30, right? Washington was 29. I mean, this is part of the struggle, and I think this is the thing that... It's half my age plus seven is how many prospects <laughs> at minimum. But it's like this is part of what we, you know, internally especially 
having gone through some staffing changes at, at sort of inconvenient times, which you don't say to make Kevin feel bad, but we just, you know, that's just a reality of having. No. Kevin and and Brendan, great. Yeah. Good for them. Yeah. Like this, you know, we don't say it to make anybody feel bad. It's just the. It's- I say it to make Derek Falvey <laughs> and his, you know, Mr. Incredible, the dad in the Incredibles head feel bad. <laughs> But, if I you can know, make fun of Dombrowski's lips, I can make fun of Derek Falvey's head. Sure, yeah, I think it's fine. So, <laughs> you know, I think that especially in in this cycle, which you know we we are appreciative of readers sort of having patience with us, we were we were just like we just got to get done, you know, we just got to get done. And then once we're done, which is now, and once we're past the draft, which will be soon, and once we're past the deadline, <laughs> which will be shockingly soon after that. You know, I I do think that we have had conversations internally about like, how do we streamline this process? How do we make things easier? You know, I am of two minds about it because on the one hand, I appreciate that there is a sizable portion of our readership that engages with prospects primarily for dynasty purposes, right? Like the reason that they care about these guys is because they're going to draft dynasty players in February or March. And like that is a... You know, that's like a a reasonable use for these lists. And for them, like the fact that we were publishing lists in July is like not super optimal. I know that it's there's not optimal. Right. I know that there are also readers who like kind of don't care, right? They wanna read like they wanna read really in-depth work. And if it takes longer, then like it takes longer. I think that, you know, in terms of you and I and whoever else ends up being involved in this process from a staffing perspective being freed up to do other stuff so that we aren't cramming on lists in, you know, right. in season but can turn our attention to the performance of the guys who you have already ranked or start to think about the draft earlier or whatever, you know, like in a normal year. I get to go to more baseball games basically right. is the thing and then right. have bigger bigger picture ideas that I can explore that like take like between me and Kylie, I just have exit velo data right. for most years dating back to like 2015. Right. Like that we could use to do public facing research right. that hasn't been done. Right. Do I have the intellectual horsepower to like do that? No. <laughs> I mean, I- and I've shared all of the spreadsheets with the people who we work with who do, but part of the problem there, and this is, has been part of the problem too, like, you know, our eyes have been too big for our stomachs in this way over the course of, you know, the last five years or so. But like, at one point I got it in my head, oh, I can source TrackMan data. Right. And put it on the board. Right. And then the problem became teams calculate things slightly differently in right. a meaningful way. Right. For example, one team's max exit velocity is the hardest a guy hit a ball all year, period. And another team's max exit velocity is, well, there are inevitably outliers. TrackMan makes mistakes. And right. so to lop all those off the very top of the sample all at once, we tell you know our database to clear the top three off of everyone right? and then take the average of the next, you know, best five or the right. ten, top 10% mean or, you know, airborne exit velo maximums. And so it became, because it's so specific, right? year to year, in order to protect my sources, I often source these things from like different areas because the specificity of it could make it so that like, huh, you know, I, you know, I work for the platypuses and the way we 
the way we calculate this is the way it shows up on these nerds' website every year. So the leak is in my platypie front office. Yeah. And so then it becomes not useful right. to say, oh, weirdly, this guy's exit velos are down. It's like, no, the way the people I'm sourcing it from calculated is different than last year. And oops, that's a problem. And like totally unforeseen on my part and like made it so... I was running around doing all this work for a couple of years that like ultimately didn't matter and wasn't really, you know, useful other than for me internally to, to say, oh, okay, turns out Chris Gittens hits the ball real hard. Right. That's kind of interesting. <laughs> right. And then like, you know, Chris Gittens is in there. Like he's at the bottom of the Yankees list just because he hits the ball harder than anybody else in pro baseball, basically. And, so, you know, is that interesting? Yeah. Is it useful? I don't know. It depends who you are. If you're a right. Korean baseball GM, cool. Right. <laughs> you want to know that Chris Gittens is doing that. Right. So you can sign him. And that's the other thing that that is hard to nail down. It's like, all right, you mentioned it. Who am I writing for? Slash right. do I care? And right. you care. And I'm yeah. sure David cares. Yeah. But I don't care. Well, and I think that there's like, you know. I'm writing for my friends and me. Right. And I think that like it tends to produce really good work. I think that like the argument for figuring out a way to make this process more streamlined in addition to it serving our readers or, you know, a, a meaningful segment of our readers a little more precisely and directly is that, like I said, it frees you up to do other stuff. So you know, I think that we are thinking about that and how do we how do we do it in such a way that we are still satisfying the completest instinct while also moving the process along a little more quickly. I mean, I think that we've shown in the last couple of weeks, like we can put pedal to the metal when we need to, because we we were really determined to be done with lists before the draft. But it comes at a cost. Like it's, yeah, it it, you know, everybody's exhausted. So, yeah. so we got to we got to figure that piece of it out. And I'm confident that we will, or that we'll at least get a lot closer than than we are right now. Like you know, it's not unusual to lose staff. That's a thing that we have dealt with in fits and sure. starts in my tenure. But we don't typically lose them. Like two weeks before the season starts. So you know, there were some weird anomalous factors at play here but i don't know it's funny too to think about the things at least on my end that have been huge efficiency gains in this process like do you remember when google sheets started letting you spell check in sheets i do <laughs> i remember i remember the list cycle that happened because here's what used to happen we write all of our little words in the google sheet we're like duh, 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 here are your little words and then you feed those little words into a special Sean's magic loader, you know, everlasting gobstopper right. machine, thing. and it and yeah. it loads them and formats them all nice. <laughs> and then I would, uh, you know, I do all of my little checks, and I don't, I I get most of the things like, oh, we're missing tool grades on this guy, or like, uh, you know, that dude doesn't have a draft round, or that guy is missing a peak velocity as a pitcher. Uh, sometimes I don't. Uh, sometimes stuff slips through. Like, you know, there was a two-hour period when we 
published, uh, gosh, the Cardinals list, I guess it would have been, where, uh, <laughs> I don't think I even told you this, where, like, Michael McGreevy's listed weight was 100 pounds. That, that, that was, was right. Yeah, that was wrong. Somebody in the comments <laughs> very, very nicely was like, I got to see this guy. So, you know, like, I... I you appreciate our Laura Flynn Boyle sinker slider. Yeah. So uh, you know, and 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 you get this like big block HTML. And then what I used to have to do is I put that big block HTML in WordPress, and WordPress like will tell you with the little red squigglies if a word is misspelled. And then I would have to cross reference that and put those spelling corrections back into the sheet that feeds the board, so that. You know, the the blurbs on the board don't have like fastball spelled wrong or, you know, whatever. So and then Google was like, you know, sometimes people like to spell check stuff in their spreadsheets. We'll just give you the ability to do that. And like hours of my life that Mm. have been saved. So there were times for sure. There were times I remember it would be like 1, 2 a.m. And you and I would still be interfacing like, yeah. like oh, yeah, we goof this and whatever. But And yeah, like I'll still see you in the WordPress. Meg Rowley is currently editing this or that thing at you know 1 or 2 a.m. I'm like waiting to get in there to add one extra guy to the others of Node at, yeah. you know, before I go to bed because I just can't not have... One more guy. Whatever, you know, this interesting, you know, especially the undrafted guys. There's definitely in that in that area in the others of note section. I do want to like juice the guys who are kind of coming out of nowhere yeah. almost for their own sake. But yeah, there are definitely there are times when I yeah see that you're still in there. Uh, all right. So let's talk about All-Star Weekend. Yeah. Now those are done. We get to, we get to not think about them for at least two months. <laughs> all right. So. All-Star Weekend is upon us. Draft Weekend is upon us. Yes. By the time folks are listening to this, there should be an updated and final draft ranking up on the site, which yep. we've been working on here the last little bit. We'll have a mock draft up over the weekend. I don't think it'll be Friday. I don't feel good about where the info is at right now enough to like promise you there will be one on Friday and there might just be one over the weekend. Um, we're going to do Futures Game. Yeah. And then the draft. Yeah. What are your all-star weekend plans? What are the things that you are going to do and like are excited for? I've never been to Dodger Stadium before, so I'm excited just to like be in that ballpark because I've never been there. You asked how much I retain of our lists. You know, one of the things that tends to help me retain better is to see guys. And so I have, this will be my third Futures game, I guess. And I just really enjoy the Futures game because there are, you know, it's not like I don't see prospects at other times, but there are definitely dudes who, you know, I will see for the first time on Saturday. And seeing them in person and being able to kind of get that look, that live look, tends to help me understand what's going on with them better, you know, and form my own subjective and often wrong opinions of them. But sometimes, you know, you go and you get a look at a guy and, you know, particularly if he's someone who has been very highly regarded and then he either really solidifies that with, albeit, you know, a a minuscule sample or doesn't look good, often doesn't look good, like in his body, you're like, oh, okay, now I know something about that. Like, you know, we went to to Denver and we saw Jason Dominguez in the field and I was like, I don't know if that's going to work. I don't know. 
I don't know. I'm nervous about that. I feel nervous about it. You know, that was one game, but that was me feeling nervous about stuff. So I'm looking forward to seeing some new dudes who I haven't seen play before. I hope that people who care about prospects and either have Peacock, it's on Peacock. Is it uh, really? It's on Peacock. But then it's going to re-air on MLB Network. So you can watch uh. it You can watch it on a delay on MLB Network if you have MLB Network. And uh, you can watch it live on Peacock if you have that. What? I know. What else is on Peacock? Uh, the Office? Question mark? Reruns of The Office? I, that's yeah. A, that's I, on Comedy Central too. Like, Is it really? Yeah. Well, so, I think so. I think that it's syndicated. Comedy Central feels like it's dead now. I don't understand the seeming animosity <laughs> that the league has for the futures game. The people who listen to this and listen to Effectively Wild have already heard me do my rant on behalf of the futures right, game. Well, my, my plea. That's so not I, me. So tell me. <laughs> I just I feel like the thing that they are trying to make the draft be is what the futures game just is. Right? Like, what if you took the all-star game that features your best prospects, many of whom are close to the majors, and you like got the next, uh, you got fans excited about the next generation of guys, right? This seems like a no-brainer, especially at a time where people have seemingly never been more interested in prospects and prospect coverage than they are right now, right? Like, That's just at our site. No, I just... But you know what I mean? Like, I... I think that the draft broadcasts are good. I think they've gotten a lot better over the years. You know, I think that they have they have really done a lot, both the the network broadcast and ESPN, to like try to make people care about this stuff and really raise the kind of level on it. But I think there's just always going to be a ceiling on how invested people are going to get in the draft because you're not going to see these guys for another like three, five years. It's not like the NFL where you're just going to see that dude in September. Like if he's any good, he's just going to be there, you know, on Sundays. So I think there's just a natural ceiling to what Uh. people can can get out of the what the average fan, not everybody, but what the average fan can get out of the draft. So like. Get I'm try to get people hyped. Back. You you you. But why? <laughs> so, the draft. Obviously, my separation from the median baseball fan. Certainly, the people who are reading our website are already yes separated. Like if we're looking at it on a bell curve of yes. interest in baseball for sure. My aunt Regina loves the Phillies. She loves the Phillies because she loved Jimmy Rollins and thought David Bell was cute. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And then she became like a hardcore Phillies fan through that. Cool. But she doesn't have great, like she doesn't know who Andrew Painter is. Okay. Sure. But people who come to our site are more likely to know who Andrew Painter is. They're more likely to know what Woba is. Right. Okay. All right. So it is hard for me to really have a feel for, you know, We've watched, you and I have watched the NFL draft together. Yes. Okay. We watched that one year, the ABC version of it, where it was like, this guy ran a 4-3-40 and his grandma died a couple months ago. And it was just like, what are we doing? Yeah, that was was a weird year. Everyone's parents were either (laughs) Olympians or dead. Yeah. There were no just like folks hanging out. They were like, this... Young man has gone through hell, and I was like, "Oh no, not again!" Like what? You know, yeah, that was a weird, 
that was a weird uh, draft year. That was but, strange. Okay, so obviously ABC, the way they think about it is, how can we get Eric's Aunt Regina... To watch the draft. To watch the draft and right. stay interested. And so I'm sure that there are focus groups and there is market research and all sorts of you know manipulative BS that people with marketing degrees at Disney are doing that say, hey, people like it more when you talk about stuff like this. In our broadcasts, we, you know, when we cut up these sports center highlights, everyone put on Sports Center tonight and hear what I'm saying. But rather than show just highlight after highlight nice and tight so, so that we can see the most action, we need a close-up shot of the hitter's face before you watch him double. And so all these highlights have like all this fat on them such that you see much fewer actual sports action. Sure. Because like we're getting close up to these people's face. And I'm digressing now, but I'm going to go back to my original point. So like the draft, you and your Orioles or you and your Mariners are having an injection of talent specific to the team. Right. You care about the team. You care about the Phils or you care about the Marlins, both of you or whatever. Okay. Right. And so the draft is a deluge of new Marlins that you get to care about, whereas the Futures game has a Marlin or two who are already in the org. And most people don't, you know, the 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 chance of, of them actually making a big league impact, like no matter how hard Sixo Sanchez throws at the Futures game, his shoulder is still just going to do whatever it's going to do. Sure. And so it's not like a guarantee, even if he's at Jacksonville, that he's going to be there soon. Sure. And so, you know, to, to catch a glimpse of Sixto Sanchez for an inning is maybe not necessarily going to grab the Marlins fans the way hearing, you know, three guys are now part of the organization. Like, I just think it's way different. There are prospects involved, but otherwise it is much, much different. I thought that, my, I mean, my experience at the Combine was unbelievable. It was Some of it was just because the weather was perfect, and I got to watch baseball for six hours a day. Uh, but, like, I thought MLB crushed the Combine in a, a positive crushing, like, you know, not a uh, bad one. But <laughs> it's weird what crushed has become. It seems like a Republican verb. But they crushed the Combine. Crush. Uh, so, but, like... <laughs> I thought that the combine was great, but also I'm sure no one watched MLB Network to see it unless they're like hyper nerds and welcome those of you who did. And, you know, I just think that the draft is its own thing because there's something specific to your team getting a bunch of new guys Sure, that creates a feeling in you that is more meaningful than that guy's already on my team. Jordan Leonerton, he's got, you know, a Canadian flag on his Sleeve, he's the international team's first baseman, and he plays for my Tigers, and he's hitting 230 at Toledo. And what do I have really to be excited about? Yeah, but I think that there's going to, and there's going to be some amount of variation year to year in terms of the quality of the roster. But I just think that there's un, there's untapped potential in that broadcast. I agree with sure. you. Like, not all of those guys are going to get to the big leagues, but, you know, they're at least closer than the, closer. the draft guys, right? And in some years, I mean, like, this is kind of a, like, no offense to these guys, but this is kind of like a down year, at least from my perspective in terms of the, the rosters that we're seeing for the Futures games. But we've had years where it's been like, I mean, like, last year was like, wow, you know, and 
So I, I just think that it's never going to be like an amazing ratings boon for them, but it'd probably do better if first pitch wasn't 15 minutes before the literal Yankees and Red Sox play, yeah. for instance, which is what is happening on Saturday, right? Like, there's like, how how big could it be? How invested could we get people? I think more maybe than you do, but I don't think we're ever going to actually realize any of that potential if we're burying it on like a streaming app that most people don't have on a night when there's a big league game going on. This was the other thing I said on Effectively Wild. Like you have All-Star Week, right? The All-Star game is Tuesday. And then there's like a gap. Like why not put the Futures game on so it is the only thing on that night? Then I bet a lot of people are going to watch it because if the sport you care about is baseball, there are other things going on, right? Like there's the WNBA, there's soccer. But like if what you care about is baseball, put it on the night when there's no other to do to that night. Sure. And then and that is 100% correct. That That is a huge misstep. So, that The idea that yeah. if I'm a Red Sox fan... I have to choose between watching Sedan Rafaela, who has emerged as like this multi-positional plus-plus center fielder, shortstop, third base. You know, his swing. When you guys see him get in the box and see his batting stance, you're going to go, oh my God, like it just looks like someone cloned Mookie Betts in the batter's box. Like it's going to be fun. But you have to choose between that and a huge divisional matchup. Right. As you're chasing, you know, I mean, they're not, you know, 15 games or so. It's not going to happen. But like... You know, you're in the toughest division in baseball yeah. and you're you're fighting for your life against the evil empire and it's either that or watch these guys. That's for sure is right. What they need to do is show BP. Yeah. Put on Dominican music and show BP. Have Harold Reynolds who, you know, for sure there are issues, but like his energy, the kids just seem to feed off his Yes. His energy. He just has such it's a, a positive vibe around yeah. all the kids. This seems to be a, a, a place where his shtick really lands, right? Both. Put him behind the cage yeah. and put a tracer line on the ball yeah. as it leaves the cage so people can see who's, you know, where these guys are, are hitting it. And it will be like, oh, wow, Ellie De La Cruz's BP is absurd. Or whatever, like it will get, put some of that stuff in context, and then you can have all sorts of like visual. That's where most of my day is resisting the urge to schmooze on the field with the other writers and the players and stuff, and sitting up and like locking in for BP and infield kids. If you're listening to this, like please have energy at infield this year, please, please, please. And if you're the guy who's doing the music in, in the ballpark this weekend, please put some like something upbeat on for, yeah. for BP and infield. It was dead silence last year. Yeah, that was weird, which I normally like, but uh, it was weird. Not for that. Like, I want, you know, we want to watch these guys like take infield and yeah. play with some flair. But so, yeah, like for sure there are things that they could be doing that they are not. And who knows if the Futures game will like go the way of the Pro Bowl. But if it does, then we'll just do some fan graphs thing where we just like, we'll just have them here to do whatever during the All-Star break. We'll just have like the AZL Futures <laughs> game where me and Bill Mitchell and you and who else is around like... You know, I'm sure we could get like Preller or somebody who would be be down to watch 
guys in the AZL throw 88 for seven innings. <laughs> Just be like, yeah, let's go. And we'll stream it or whatever. And we'll charge people 10 bucks to do the thing. All right. So then draft stuff. And then, yeah. And then, and then we have the draft. We get to, to reunite with erstwhile Fangraphs writer, Kylie McDaniel. Kylie texted me. I'm sure he told this to you too, because we're at some point we're going to see him. Yes. But their draft broadcast rehearsal is during the Futures game. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, sucks to be you, bro. Yeah, poor Kylie. <laughs> I'm sure that it's not... I'm sure, like, Jim and and Jonathan have inconvenient conflicts as oh, well. Yeah. Like, it really is us who just gets to do whatever the hell we want. So, so let me ask you a question, because, like, I have a sense of this, and I imagine your sense is the same, and you talk to even more folks who are directly impacted by this than I do. Is there anyone who is happy that the draft is in July? No. Is there one single person who works for a team who's like, this no. is a great idea? No, because all of them are already, we already have a toe in 2023. Right. The PDP stuff has begun. Collegiate Team USA has had stuff. There will be a high school all-star game at Dodger Stadium on Friday. You know, it's, it feels weird for it to be this late. There are, you know, who who is stoked about it? is the small group of guys who get to, after the college season is over, go to the draft league, go to the Cape, go to the Northwoods league or whatever. And really light it up. Right. So, yeah. and and there are for sure significant guys who have, who have done it. You know, I'm writing up the high school arms now. And like Noah Schultz, a high school lefty who will go pretty high in the draft, he pitched in the draft league and th- was throwing harder in the draft league than he was the last time I saw him. And that's meaningful. And like Nick Nostrini in the Dodgers system had a terrible junior year at UCLA, went to a collegiate wood bat league after the college season was over and he looked really good and he boosted his stock. He ended up with a team that's good at player development Yeah, and was one of our picks to click just because his stuff on paper is crazy and the Dodgers are good at manicuring pitching prospects like this. And so for sure that there are some individuals who have that extra window to improve or show people that they've improved, you know, between the college season and the draft. And I bet that them and their agents are are happy about it. But for the most part, every scout for sure just wants to be done in June. Yeah. I know the CBA language says that like MLB has the ability to move it between a certain date range. I don't know that baseball ops people's desires are at the forefront of Rob Manfred's concerns. Uh, I would say that it's probably not. Right. <laughs> so I think that they want to showcase the draft. And then the other thing that the date does is, so like the draft will happen and there's not a lot of time between when the signing deadline is and the end of the minor league season. Yeah. So some of these guys won't get lathered up at all for minor league stuff. So like the group of guys who all see here in Arizona on the complex after the draft will probably be more scarce than it typically is. And it makes it more important, number one, for like instructional league to get scouted and probably more important for instructional league to be a thing. When the draft date moved, we had more teams who had turned away from instructs re-engage with a traditional slate of games so that some of these guys got some amount of pro development after the draft because the window to to do so was just otherwise too narrow. Right. And so I, I think that, yeah, you'll see that's nice for me 
because I want the Mariners to have instructs. I want them right. to bring their best couple guys from the DSL up, and I want to see that guy on yeah. the field with Harry Ford and right. Edwin Arroyo. Right. And, you know, it's just easier to, to gauge stuff that way. And as teams like, you know, the Mariners and uh, Milwaukee, there have been certain teams over the course of time who sit, you know, they don't think that games are a great way to develop players, especially when they've already played a bunch of games all year. Like, let's do strength and conditioning. Right. Let's do classroom learning. Let's do cultural assimilation. All that stuff is really important, too. Sure. Just play play a couple games a week for me, though, right? Right, like, right. Yeah. Come on, just give me a little taste, like three games a week. <laughs> just, you know, like, send me your instruct schedule, and I'll just get uh, just a couple games from you, you Mariners Terrible. guys. And Terrible. I am terrible. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's really bad. But please do it. <laughs> Teams in Florida too. I'll go back to Florida. I don't care. You know, I saw a beautiful water bird impaled by. Uh, You've already been with, damaged with, by. Yeah, like Florida. I'll go to Florida again. It's worth it. <laughs> so when you're thinking about the draft on Sunday, and obviously, like you're gonna have your full updated rankings, and you're going to, I think, in the lead into that, give some be sort at the of draft. Yeah, you're going to be at the draft, give some themes. But like as you are looking ahead to Sunday, like are there a couple of sort of macro themes about this year that stand out to you as as likely to determine the course of the draft? I know that like all of the pitching is hurt seemingly. Yeah, so I was texting with a cross checker right before we came on, just trying to to pull some some more like mock draft intel. This is a guy who's really plugged in for a cross checker. This guy knew the Royals were being sold <laughs> before anybody else. Like I was at a game with this guy and he's like, Hey, you know, the Royals are going to be sold. And I was like, I like texted Jeff. I was like, Hey, I just caught wind of this, but he's like, got nothing. He has nothing right now. He's like some, so much of it is clouded. Because Baltimore is playing things so close to the vest at one. Yeah. And while ultimately the dominoes that fall as a result of their decision at, at one may only be one domino, i.e. Right. if Drew, Drew Jones doesn't go one, right. the Diamondbacks will just go, thanks, and take him. Right. But they're holding up some of the negotiation process because the handful of guys who they're talking to or their, or their advisors – don't have like crystal clear information that would otherwise make teams at five, six, seven more aware of what the number will be or who will go three and like what dominoes will fall at five, six, seven, eight are still kind of unclear. Yeah. And then the injury part of it you alluded to, yeah. So most of the guys who entered the year as the top pitching prospects on the board were hurt, got hurt. They had Tommy John. Many of them between like January and March, either right before or during the college season, Carson Wisenhunt, mm -hmm. lefty East Carolina, had a PED suspension that, you know, had his whole year sidelined. He pitched, uh, you know, not at his college. Uh, Kamar Rocker, obviously people know about. Like, so all this stuff, Dylan Lesko, Tommy John. Uh, and that's clouding stuff too. I think that it'll be interesting to see how some of the college pitching does shake out. I have my own tastes. I have my own you know, board basically. Right. So that'll be fascinating. What the Mets do with their two picks right there in the middle right. third of the first round will be interesting as well. The rocker pick is protected for another year. So they don't have to take the pick that they got as compensation for gotcha. not signing him and use it on like a college player who they feel confident that they can get a deal done with. They can kind of still be 
creative with that if they if they feel so inclined. Then Cincinnati, obviously Cincinnati uh, is in like a full scale rebuild. They have a mid first round pick and then an early comp pick. The Rockies do as well. All those teams picking in the comp rounds will have access to more high school pitching than usual. I guess maybe by a little bit. It is arguably a weak college pitching crop. I think that's true up top, but not true in like the meat of the class. Like I still like a lot of these college pitchers. Yeah. But uh, what teams do when they want to run to safety in that 15 to 30 range may not be... There just are fewer opportunities to do it with college pitching. Yeah. Uh, because the guy who you would typically do that with is hurt. Oh, you know, is hurt or was suspended for PED. So right. a little bit cloudy there. But I think that the, the 2020 shortened season and some of the guys who, you know, in addition to Rocker, like we've got Judd Fabian who didn't sign last year. We have some older college hitters who performed really well and have sort of bubbled up into the back of the first round, or at least they're being like rumored to like Tyler Locklear at VCU might be someone's late first round target. That was, you know, a second round, maybe third round names, like a smaller conference first baseman who has performed so well that some of these teams picking at the back of the first round, like he is in their mix. Dalton rushing catcher from Louisville is in teams mix. And so those are some of the names that are sort of bubbling into the back of first round rumors as we get closer to the draft and there aren't as many traditional candidates for teams to run to safety in the event that their their board blows up. You might really love a high school hitter. You might really love a high school pitcher. And if that guy goes two, three picks in front of you and you don't have uh, like a, an obvious option that you like in that range from that like player demo, you're going to look at your college players. And so teams are identifying guys late in the process who fit that bill for them. Yeah. Uh, The other group of players who I'll be interested to see where they go is there's a group of really athletic college outfielders, huge tools, big projectable frames, you know, underwear model physique who can't hit or can they? You know, like that's the question (laughs) is, can I make Dylan Beavers hit can i make brock jones an outfielder at stanford hit right and so there are like five of those guys jacob melton from oregon state ryan Surmack from one of the small schools in illinois that's escaping me i think it's southern illinois these are all big athletic powerful dudes whose swings are weird or they have something about them that is like hit tool risky and whether or not teams think they can augment it or that they will hit enough, like that is highly variable. And so to see how those guys start to slowly come off the board will be interesting. And ultimately the thing that will happen is what always happens, which is the up the middle guys who have demonstrated bat to ball skills will just tend to go ahead of them. So like Zach Neto at Campbell, Zach Neto in the fall for me was, I don't know, I don't really know where he was relative to where the other publications had him, but like just knowing that I had him stuffed relative to the other, you know, the general sentiment, like the feedback as I'm shuttling around the list was like, John Kasevich at Oregon is too high. Eric Brown at Coastal Carolina is too high. Like where's Brock Jones on your list? And things have shaken out in a way that it's like, 
no, Zach Nettle might go as high as seven just because he feels safe right? playing shortstop, making a ton of contact. And so the group of guys who fit that bill are like Eric Brown, as I mentioned, at Coastal Carolina, although his swing is crazy too. Zach Neto, I like John Kasovich a lot at Oregon, although he, I don't know, he, I, I think you could send him out at shortstop, but he doesn't look like a shortstop, you know what I mean? Brady Neal, the catcher at IMG Academy, I thought performed, he, he reclassified, so he's like 17 and a half on draft day. Oh, wow. Or, or a little bit more than that. He just performed about as well as any of the elite kids from a bat-to-ball perspective on the showcase circuit. He just doesn't have the, the you know quite the power of a Termar Johnson or like that tier of kid, but it still was like up the middle, contact-oriented. I had him 20th in the fall. I'll just have him somewhere like close to that. Uh, as we update the rankings here over the next, you know, 48 hours. So, right. And then I don't know, like, I'm not sure if there's anything else. I'm just so interested to see how the teams behave. Yeah. It's always fascinating to me how the teams strategize and people cannot imagine how much is going on behind closed doors. I know of a situation where a team picking like seventh or so, this is a couple of drafts ago, a team picking seventh or so wanted... Casey Mize to fall to the Phillies so that the Phillies would take Alec Bohm, thinking that like Alec Bohm would then not have a home immediately following the Phillies or fall to them, or that Bohm falling would set off another chain know, of domino events. chain yeah. of events that enabled the player that they wanted to fall to them. But that would only happen if the Tigers didn't take Casey Mize first. So that the Phillies, who wanted quick-moving pitching, would have no choice but to take him. Right. And so that team was like doing everything they could behind the scenes to try to scare the Tigers off of Mize. To like try to make, you know, whether it was his bonus demand scaring them away, you know, that was primarily it. Like, you know, like if we can make the Tigers be like, we can't possibly give this guy who had a PRP a year ago, which... You know, now it's funny that at the time it's like Casey Mize has some medical stuff that's kind of scary. Yeah. And then it was fine. It was fine. It was fine. Then his stuff kind of slipped and it was not good. And now he's now is when the TJ happened. Right. And so it's interesting to think about that stuff where if you have a medical on a guy that you're like, this is kind of scary, but also he's still throwing great. Casey Mize looked great. Right. Jesus Lazardo looked great. Uh, well, no, Lazardo had TJ before, but you know, you, you understand what I'm getting yeah. at. So, but yeah, there's all sorts of like covert stuff happening behind the scenes to try to make things fall the way you want them to, to get the players that, that you want. Some of it is kind of subversive and icky and, but most of it is stuff that uh, like it is so much fun and nuanced to think about those angles as you're sitting here right. as a third party, just observing this stuff. Uh, going on yeah and like think about the ways if you were involved that you would try to make that stuff happen that it, you know doesn't cross the line <laughs> uh, where you're like actively hurting the player right and his ability to earn what might be the biggest payday of his right. life like that's where it becomes like no you shouldn't be doing this yeah but if you're distributing misinformation to you know screw over the Braves like fine <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm conscious of how long we've talked and that we have another I am not. wonderful segment in right, this episode. Now. So I think 
Eric, I'm given to understand that you are going to come back next week and you're going to tell listeners your impressions of the draft and all of this stuff. But do you have any final thoughts before we go? You started this segment and I'm I'm helping us wrap up. Well, yeah, that's good because I haven't looked at my browser to see how long we've been talking. <laughs> yeah, people, if you're listening to this and haven't engaged in futures game or draft stuff, just give it a try. It doesn't matter if it's at our site or anywhere else. Just yeah. give it a go and then follow these guys. Pick pick your favorite couple. Just start small. Yeah. Pick your favorite couple of dudes and then just follow the next 12 to 16 months of their careers. Because, you know, I think one of the valuable things over the course of me doing this is making the adjustment, feeling where you're wrong, and then adjusting. And so it's all well and good to think, hey, Chris Paddock, yeah. throws in the mid-90s, plus change up, I'm all in. Yeah. And then for one season to feel like, all right, I did it. Right. Miguel Andahar, wow, we sourced exit velocities. Aren't we so smart? Let's stuff this guy. Wow, he won rookie of the year. We're the smartest guys there are. No. <laughs> no. No. And then feel how that happened. Yeah. And it's, oh, Mikel Andujar can't play defense anywhere and just kind of swings. Right. And so then go about, you know, make your adjustment and say, you know, Juan Yepes just kind of swings. Yeah. <laughs> and can't really play defense anywhere. And, you know, I know he's hitting right now, but the last time I did this. Right. Yeah. And so I encourage everyone to take that, to take that stance and just let the things play out. Get a feel for who the players are and then just let it happen and wash over you the way it has me for the last half decade or so of, of doing this full time. Yeah. And then in no time at all, you too will be ready to write 260,000 words, give or take, about the, the folks you see. Kylie and mine? Kylie and my Kylie and my's book deal. Yes was for like 70,000 words. We had to hit like 75,000 words or something like that. And didn't you go over to the point that they were like, <laughs> stop it or we're going to have to get a special spine for this? We did, but also <laughs> you edited three books of words while also doing all your other site things. So good job. Thanks. Well, you shovel coal into the website every morning. Yeah. I, I mean, and I'm. It's not small. Yeah, I'm gamely assisted in that effort, so it is. It is hardly a solo project, but yeah. Well, hey, thanks, and you know, thanks for writing good words, and we hope people go and check them out, and can look at the updated 2022 list, which has all the graduates pulled off, and we'll soon have all of the draftees added once we know who those folks are. You can check out farm system rankings there. If you are going to check out the Futures game for the first time and you're trying to orient yourself to who all these folks are, you can see scouting reports and tool grades and all sorts of good stuff like that on the Futures game tab on the board. So it's just like it's the roster of guys. We even made sure today to add uh, to add Jordan Lawler, who got added as a replacement late. So, you know, go check that out. Uh, check stuff out at Fangraphs. And, um, you know, I'm going to thank you, Eric, for having me on Fangraphs Audio. <laughs> yeah, thanks for coming on. I'll talk to you and Lindbergh on your, in your world soon, I assume. Yes. All right. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Jeff Arnold for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoy the program, consider telling a friend or two about it. It helps us out. Next week is not only the draft, all-star game, futures game, and home run derby, 
but it also happens to be the 10th anniversary of our sibling podcast, Effectively Wild. Not only will there be some special podcast content next week, but you can check out the Effectively Wild 10th anniversary shirt, as well as other new EW merch over at BreakingTea.com. You should definitely check it out, and don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter as well, free to your inbox every weekday. That should do it for us this week. We hope you have a great all-star break, and we'll talk to you next time.